Welcome to Season 2 of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, childhood education, and other factors all influence relationship building. On this episode of Rooted in Relationships, we talk with Dr. Jean Rhodes, the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and Director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Dr. Rhodes will discuss the role that intergenerational relationships and mentorships play in the development of young people. On this edition of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, we have with us Dr. Jean Rhodes, who I think it is fair to say is really the country's foremost researcher on youth mentoring. Jean is now the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Jean has devoted her career to understanding and advancing the role that intergenerational relationships play in the intellectual, social, educational, and career development of young people. She's published three books four edited volumes, over 100 chapters and peer-reviewed articles on topics related to positive youth development, the transition to adulthood, and mentoring. Jean, it's really, really great to have you with us today. It's great to be here, Ken. So I have always wondered this. What drew you to the study of mentoring? Was it a personal story, an intellectual story? How did you find yourself on this path? Well, it started, I was getting my PhD in clinical psych, and I was studying resilience, risk and resilience, way back in the 1980s. And we were looking at a lot of adversity. And and if you might remember back in the 80s, there was a crack epidemic. And Mm -hmm. yet some young people resisted all trouble and were on a clear path to finishing high school, going on to higher ed. And I wanted to know what accounted for it and uh, started interviewing all the students at this one high school called Proviso East, which is a really rough part of Chicago. And almost without exception, the young people who were thriving had somebody in their life, in addition to their parents, a caring coach, uh, somebody. And I found that really interesting. It just was a theme that just kept coming up in these interviews. And I went to the literature and there were some developmental psychologists like Emmy Werner and uh, Michael Rutter and Norm Garmazy and others who had observed this as well in their studies of children of war, children of poverty. Even sociologists had begun to see it in children who were growing up in very difficult neighborhoods around New York. And yet nobody was really studying it in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. They were observing it. And there was one chapter of a Michael Rutter book and it was just one good relationship. And he was just observing this phenomenon. Now, this was back in the 80s. And so I started to have some really important questions about it. Like, is it really that this relationship is causing resilience or is it a proxy indicator? That mm-hmm. is, those kids who are thriving are attractive to caring adults and gravitate to them. Is it compensating for something in the parent relationship? Or is it that those young people who have good attachments with their parents are able to form these relationships? So is it more of like a corrective experience or is it supplementary? 
implementing a good working relationship? That was a real important question I had. And then can we even come close to approximating these through programs like Big Brothers Big Sisters? And so I wrote a couple grants and was fortunate enough to get a five-year grant from the NIH and five-year grant from William T. Grant, and I was off and running. But you asked, is it a personal thing? Yes. So one of the reasons that that resonated so much for me is because I had been so touched and helped by mentors in my life. I was from a middle-class family, but a family where there was difficulty. My father had gotten involved with some difficulties with the law. Their 30-year marriage was breaking up. There was... Mm. uh, bankruptcy was being declared. I had, there were six of us and there wasn't a lot of money for me to go to college. And that was sort of the conditions in which I was applying to and going to college. And I got to college and fell into this deep friendship with a young woman named Marina Albi. She was, happened to be on my floor of my dorm at University of Vermont. And uh, I didn't really care for my roommate. She didn't care for her. So we just bonded really deeply as friends. She was immediately became, and still is, one of my best friends of my life. And she took me home and she introduced me to her father, George Albee. Now, listeners may recognize that name, but he was a founder of the field of community psychology. Yeah, I was like, is that the George Albee? That's incredible. Yeah. And um, George became my father, my mentor, my intellectual aspiration, all of the above. And eventually the Albies invited me to move in to the Albie residence, which was a farm. Now, George was a real character. He was kind of a a farmer and they had chickens. and, And my job was to care for the chickens. And in exchange, I got room and board. And I lived with George Albie for several years. And of course, that shaped my destiny, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it put me on a path toward social justice, toward looking at the roots of psychopathology through the lens of inequality and, and sexism, and really just kind of, it filtered basically everything I learned uh, after that in graduate school and beyond. So I had this sort of knowledge that prevention was the answer, and I had this experience of mentoring, and I had this finding, and the three of those things kind of just came together and put me on this mission, I have to say, because it's been 30 years, and I just can't stop studying it. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. Did he encourage you to go into research, or did that happen later? And it was sort of by osmosis. And It's funny, he has four kids as well, and it was a very similar configuration. My family has two boys and two girls, about two years apart, and that was Marina's family, and so he kind of just like, I just fit into this family. And none of his kids looked like they were going to go into academia or community psychology. So he really wanted me to and um, wrote letters of recommendation and encouraged me not to take time off between college and grad school, just go straight in. He put me in touch with Lenny Jason, who he really respected, Emery Cowan and Jim Kelly and all of these kind of people that he had known and met along the way. And I got to work with all of them and um, just kind of grew up in community psychology. That's amazing. It's been my sense from the outside looking in at your work and the one time I got to visit you at UMass Boston that you've kind of paid it forward with your own mentoring of just now a really impressive array of future researchers yourself. I know that in theory, that's what the doctoral advisor is always supposed to be, but it just seems, you know, even if you just look at the stuff on your lab website that you've really kind of leaned into developmental relationships with your own students. Am I intuiting that correctly? 
Yes, almost to a fault, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I have a hard time letting go of my students. So you'll see like Sarah Schwartz, who's now a very well-known researcher under herself. I am always trying to find the next project with Sarah, with Liz Raposa, with Matt Hagler, with people going way back. I've placed 11 or 12 students in academia and I have a new one, Kirsten Christensen, who you'll be hearing from. She's just simply amazing and behind that, more. So I feel like that is sort of my way to pay it forward, as you say. So we have to kind of fast forward to the more recent parts of your career because this really fascinating book that I want to talk with you about has a title that seems in the pages of the book something of a of a life journey that you can read about which you do within the pages it's called older and wiser and why did you choose that title for a book that really is about your science it's not the most like reconsidering mentoring for the 21st century or something like that you know it's like a very intriguing title yeah well thanks for mentioning that book it's really a double meaning right like Mm -hmm. i am older i am almost 60 i started in academia when i was 27 and my views of mentoring have completely changed i was one of the strongest proponents of this idea that all you needed was a bond and everything would flow from that one good relationship it came from my training at the University of Chicago, where it was steeped in psychoanalytic theory and all of the work I did, it preceded cognitive behavioral therapy. So all the work I did was just about unpacking the relationship. And I just carried that viewpoint into mentoring and saw everything through this lens of sort of neo-Freudian relationship-based, that was all there was. And so it was really a wake-up call when I began to challenge that very premise. I had a model, a theory of how it would work. You form this relationship and then it unleashes these cognitive identity and social-emotional processes, and that leads to great things, but the data weren't supporting it. And so one of the first things that happened when I wrote Older and Wiser was I plotted all the effect sizes of meta that have come of youth mentoring that have emerged from meta-analyses, going back to David Dubois' seminal meta-analysis almost 20 years ago, all the way up to one of my former postdoc students, Liz Raposa's 2019 meta-analysis and everything in between, Mm -hmm. you know, meta-analyses by Patrick Tolan and another one by David and me, many more. And so I plotted that against how much we've invested in this field, in in programs, in research. And those have gone up and up and up, and yet that effect size is flat. And so that really led me to a chapter that was very painful. It probably took a year to write Hmm. (laughs) called How Did We Get It So Wrong for So Mm -hmm. Long? And it was really, how did I get it? (laughs) Um, But how did the whole field kind of get it wrong? Because maybe we're happy with a, a low effect size, but I believe we can do so much better. And one of the reasons I know that is because there are mentoring programs. For example, Michael Karcher's incredible mentoring program that get enormous effect sizes. And so I began to see that our journey in mentoring really parallels child and adolescent psychotherapy's journey, where the effect sizes were pretty stable. But then as they began to embrace really more targeted evidence-based practice, the effect sizes inched up and up and up. And over the past 20 years, we diverge and they've gone up. And I believe the reason is, is because they've embraced that, you yes, you need a good, solid working relationship, but you need more than that. You need targeted evidence-based practice on top of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was sort of how I ended up older and wiser is kind of coming to terms with all of it. Yeah, when I first read your book, I initially thought that insight in that chapter was mostly about what we might call, for lack of a better term, traditional mentoring, as opposed to the kind of stuff that we're doing at Search Institute now on what we call developmental relationships or informal mentoring or natural mentoring. But actually, the more I thought about it, the more I think my guess is, although there's not the level of science evidence, I should say, what we're doing, because we're earlier, although 
there's some good stuff, including stuff you've written on natural mentoring. I think the insight you have is as relevant for the natural mentoring or developmental relationships world as it is for the traditional mentoring space, because as people have started to embrace the framework we have, which is really an elaboration of the kind of emotional connection in a dyadic relationship, I get a little uneasy in my stomach because it starts to sound like the connection is sufficient and that's all we need. And so then as I thought about your insight about, no, it's actually the connection plus the intentional development of skills or of competencies or college going or something like that. I think your insight is as relevant for those of us who are more in that sort of informal natural mentoring developmental relationship space as a more traditional mentoring piece. And just one more point to continue the tangent. Your insight reminded me of something that the Chicago Consortium a few years ago did this interesting paper on a framework for young adult success. And they referenced our framework on developmental relationships, but they paired it with this idea of a developmental experience. Mm. And I've said this to Camille Farrington and others there, like it also was a super complex conception of a developmental experience with like eight factors. And like, but it basically is about action reflection. And I've thought as we're at a good turning point, like developmental relationships necessary, but not sufficient, your insight about skills and learning. And then that idea of developmental experience, like we went through it together, whatever yeah. it was. I think it's really an important insight for those of us out here trying to learn from those things that you've been looking at and writing about in your book and otherwise. You also have some interesting things to say in the book about volunteer versus paid mentors, you know, or, yeah. or really or really the limitations of volunteer mentoring, maybe in terms of meeting some of the needs. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking on that score? Yeah. And I also want to reflect on, on the developmental natural mentoring thing. Okay. So yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, that's absolutely. We can return to that as well. So I think for a long time, we got into this mindset in the field of mentoring, that informal mentoring, that there's different motivations people have to mentor. And one was egoistic and one was more altruistic. And always we said it has to be more altruistic. If they're too egoistic, they're just trying to get ahead or whatever. It can't work. And that's actually not true. Mm. (laughs) Actually, we need to make motivation explicit because people do volunteer for various motivations. And they shouldn't feel shame if they're doing it to get credentials. Mm-hmm. In fact, that should be celebrated. You want credentials? Let's credential you as you as as you're on this journey so that mentoring becomes a form of workforce development. Just because someone's getting compensated doesn't mean that they can't be helpful. Think about a caring teacher, a after school staff, a camp counselor. All of those people are paid and are still able to form really authentic caring relationships. So I don't think that that is the sort of being an altruistic volunteer is the sine qua non and nothing else works. They all work as long as we're in t- what it is we're trying to do. So in the field of community psychology, and really going all the way back to the start of our conversation, George Albee talked about uh, paraprofessionals and how we can't expect these PhD level clinicians to be providing direct care, that that is just too inefficient, that there is just such a shortage of care and such a gap, particularly in marginalized communities, between the number of providers of evidence-based care and the number receiving care, that we should have the PhDs supervising the paraprofessionals. And there was a very famous study that was done by a colleague, you know, a hero of mine, Joseph Durlach, who's retired, um, where he really studied the effectiveness of paraprofessionals and his definition fits mentors perfectly. It was like Mm. undergraduates, um, you know, people in training versus psychiatrists, psychologists of the day. And what he found was that in all but two of the study, and this was a meta-analysis with many, many studies, in all but two, the paraprofessionals were actually having a stronger effect hmm. than the professionals. They were more relatable. They were more 
in the kind of world of the young person. And that led actually to a huge movement where like Emery Cowan, who I mentioned earlier, was trying to train cab drivers and bartenders and hairstylists in evidence-based care so that when people confessed to them, they had resources. One of the things I just had in my notes and getting ready for this, you did an interview with my colleague Peter Scales at Search Institute for another project, and I read Peter's notes, for it, and, and Peter quoted you for internal purposes, but he's pretty accurate. He said, you said, we don't need more research that helps us improve effect sizes a little for the things we know work. The need is to get them into the hands of the people who need them. I assume that's in the space that you're talking about now with paraprofessionals and others who are not necessarily the usual suspects in a yeah, traditional I mean, system space. Absolutely. And like, I don't know when I did that interview with the great Peter Scales. I, I really love talking to him always. But the question is that now we are better equipped than ever to get evidence into the hands of paraprofessionals because it used to be that we would try to get them to deliver, you know, evidence-based treatment with fidelity. And it's very hard, right? Especially if they're not paid very much or they're volunteer to have them follow these manualized treatment, which is what evidence-based care often is. But now we have manualized treatments being delivered over technology-delivered interventions, and paraprofessionals don't have to deliver the intervention. All they have to do is make sure the young person remains engaged and practices it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, social-emotional learning training, instead of the mentor having to deliver SEL, you know, week by week, and often they have to go from thing to thing very quickly because there's so much to cover, they can have that young person go through technology-delivered SEL training and then say, all right, what did you learn this week? Mm -hmm. Let's practice it. Let's role play how you might your emotions and let's really personalize it. And let's build on what you learned last week. How do you integrate these skills? And so paraprofessionals can now become the people that provide what's called behavioral rehearsal or supervised practice, and what's called supportive accountability, which is making sure they remain engaged, which is a really important role. I mean, it's an extremely valuable role. And as far as reaching the plateau, what I said in that interview is that's another epiphany that my colleagues in adolescent child psychology are also having. John Whites, who's at Harvard, and I'm starting to work with, uh, wrote an article called The Natural Upper Limit of Psychotherapy. Mm. He's like, we have studied it and studied it, and why are we tweaking the effect size for the very small group of young people who are getting this care, why aren't we trying to figure out how to get it, how to improve it by harnessing paraprofessionals and practicing these skills and bringing them to settings where kids aren't always getting these kinds of things? And so that's what we're doing. Uh, his lab and my lab are actually testing this idea that we're taking his really great evidence-based treatment for adolescent depression and anxiety, and we're going to have one condition where mentors provide supportive accountability and opportunities for practice, and others where they're just getting it once a week in the therapist's office. And my guess is that we're going to see that this is a very valuable role, is to extend psychotherapy and evidence-based treatment through paraprofessional mentors. That's amazing. It wasn't even in my notes, this conversation, but you're mention of technology reminds me, I actually never talked to you about it, but I know circuitously from talking to others that you've been getting into the app development world somewhat too. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the goals of that effort are and, and where it is? And I apologize for not immediately remembering the name of it. Oh, I don't want to say it wrong. Mentor Hub. That's it. That's it. And, um, yeah, so what is it? Have, so Mentor Hub is a direct outgrowth of my 30 years of research in my book. And it's this idea that supportive accountability, which is, for example, Kent, you may have downloaded a meditation app or a running app or something. And mm -hmm. chances are you were really good about it for the first few weeks and then you kind of gradually went off. And the fact is that with mental health apps, which includes 
things like Headspace. After one month, only 3% are using them. And so there's these wonderful resources that are not getting downloaded or resources that are getting downloaded but not used. So this guy out at Northwestern, this is a long answer, but anyway, his name is David Moore, came up with this a model of supportive accountability. It's not that the more you nag somebody, the more they're going to do it. It's that there's a science to nudging and encouraging. Mm-hmm. And that mentors could be trained in how to do that just right. Like, first of all, you figure out why Kent aren't you meditating? Is it because you don't have time? Is it because you can't figure out how to download the app? Is it that you downloaded it, but it's not helping? And so you can be much more specific other than, did you do it? Did you do it? And mm-hmm. so Mentor Hub is attempting to do, and it's been two years now, is create a platform for supportive accountability so that mentors can provide that nudging. A lot of the best apps have a dashboard where mentors can, you know, therapists often, but can see whether or not the young person does it. But I wanted one that no matter what app the young person was using, the mentor could see whether they used it and then encourage them and reward them and badge them or nudge them and and talk to them. And so it's really a, a supportive accountability platform that we just keep building out and building out because we've had so much interest. We are partnering with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Middle Tennessee and of Eastern Massachusetts and other organizations, uh, Friends of the Children, My Brother's Keeper. Many programs are starting to use Mentor Hub and um, we're actually really having fun with it. It's a nonprofit. If anybody who's listening wants to look at it, there's a video about it, uh, mentorhubapp.org. I definitely will right after this because it's funny that I, c- I can't believe it's been two years, but you know, the world keeps moving fast and suddenly something's out there. But that's really exciting that you're doing yeah. it. You know, when you do something like that, do you also do research on it or is that just really oh, on yeah, your practice side? Okay. No, I have uh, you know a lot of researchers, Sam McQuillan, Mike Lyons, Liz Raposa, many, many who are doing studies with Mentor Hub where we're looking at how it works with mental health apps, how we can build motivational interviewing into it. It's really kind of like something that you can keep adding to it as yeah. a framework. And so we're building, we have created lots and lots of training on how to provide supportive accountability. It's also, there's training on, you might like this, Kent, there's this notion in child and adolescent psychology and, and care that we're not trying to build a bond, the young people. We're trying to build what researchers call a working alliance. And that is, mm. this isn't just another friendship. This is something we're working on together. And so there's actually a science to working alliances with adolescents that we brought in the leading expert. His name is Mark Carver, and he helped us create an online training in building working alliances with children trainings and motivational interviewing and so forth. And what I'm trying to do is if somebody cares enough to go through all that training Mm -hmm. and gets onto a platform and is learning how to do CBT or meditation, they should be getting credentials too. And so one of my goals is to connect all of this work with um, a certificate in therapeutic mentoring um, that becomes something they can put on their LinkedIn webpage uh, and so forth. So it's, it's all a grand vision of both ends, both really enhancing the rigor of the training of the mentors, but enhancing the specificity with which we can do treat young people. Because if you think about it, if you get a grant as a Big Brothers Big Sisters, mm-hmm. it's often just for one thing. It's like STEM or SEL or whatever. And that's not what each kid needs. Each kid walking into a program may have a different set of developmental needs. And so what technology-delivered intervention enables you to do is say, okay, you need this and you could benefit from this and let's work on it together. And here's a toolbox for you. And programs get out of the business of having to create interventions and can now curate them. And we can tell whether or not young people are using them because we have something called API calls, which is like two apps talking to each other. So Mm -hmm. we have four partnerships with Khan Academy, a partnership with Headspace, with Duolingo, with mental health apps. We just 
about to finalize a partnership with a really good mindfulness app, Healthy Minds for Kids. And so, you know, that's what I've been working on. It takes a lot of time, but it's very uh, rewarding because I think it's going to advance the field. Yeah, that's so exciting. So let's go back to that question of natural mentoring or informal mentoring or development relationships. I did a stint, which I was proud to do on the board of Mentor, the the National Mentoring Partnership. And it was a number of years ago. um, And so I got to know mentoring partnerships, partly because Search Institute also works with a lot of mentoring partnerships, but I was getting asked to go speak to people and things. And there was definitely, I wouldn't use quite the word war, but there was a tussle at the time between, you know, traditional and natural mentoring. And I really come out of a K-12 space. I was a teacher administrator. And so the positive youth development journey for me really has been the last decade of, of my life, which I've loved experiencing. It reminded me a little of the reading wars that I sort of lived in the math wars. Um, has the war uh, subsided and where do you come down in, in the war? And I think war is too strong. It, it's not accurate, but there definitely was a tension because you had these wonderful partnerships across the country that had used research, a lot of it yours, for 20 years to really bring fidelity to the mentoring enterprise. And then suddenly you had people saying, okay, let's think differently. So what are your thoughts? I think the best way to think about this, Ken, is to think about mentoring on a continuum and helping young people on a continuum. So at one end of the continuum might be people that need round-the-clock care. And at the very other end are people that benefit from one or two encounters with a caring adult. And then there's everything in between. Some young people really need the structure of a formal mentoring program. Others are perfectly adept at recruiting their own mentors or with a little bit of training, recruiting their own mentors. And then they're off and running. And so I think we need to kind of not do either or, but think of it like, what is the best, based on the developmental needs of this child, what do they need? Do they need, you know, professional care? Could they use volunteer care? Or could we just encourage them to recruit more mentors if, it, if all they need is more uh, caring adults in their lives? So the continuum idea is really the solution. I- so the other thing, Kent, is that we need to think about formal mentors as a very precious resource, right? If we're thinking about that continuum of care, I did a study with somebody in the Census Bureau and uh, Elizabeth Raposo a few years ago, and we looked at how many formal mentors are there. And really, only two and a half million adults on the U.S. Census, you know, it was a CNCS supplement, said that they volunteered all year, a school year, an academic year, that they made that kind of commitment. 2.5 million is about 1% of Americans. And even if they were doing it in groups or whatever, maybe four or five million kids could have a formal mentor. There's 45 million kids. Some kids really need that one-on-one, regularly scheduled meetings. And those are the ones that we should kind of be thinking about mentoring programs for. And then for the rest, if parents are just bringing their kids to the mentoring program because they need more caring adults in their lives, we should really be thinking about two things. One is teaching the young person how to recruit mentors. It's a field called youth-initiated mentoring. And it is a set of skills, but it's more than a set of skills. It's an attitude that you are entitled to talk to your teacher, to your guidance counselors, to your coaches, and here's how. And so really kind of providing the scaffolding for young people to recruit what Jonathan Zaff and, and, and Search has done so much work on, which is sort of this network, this web of support and this web of developmental relationships. Because if we leave natural mentoring to just chance the way we often do, it reproduces inequality. Some of the work that my doctoral students and I have done has shown that this is looking at the ad health longitudinal data set, 60,000 
housing young people, that more privileged young people are much more likely to recruit mentors. And the mentors they recruit tend to be higher social capital or what, you know, what sociologists would call weaker ties. They are teachers and coaches. And if you ask more marginalized kids, kids who are in the bottom 20% of the income distribution, who is your natural mentor? It's often closer to families, these strong ties, which is great, except that those strong ties can't often connect them to opportunities. And so we need to very intentionally go into settings where young people aren't feeling comfortable recruiting adults, caring adults, and encourage that and work with them to get the support they need. And the beauty of the natural mentoring space is that what I needed when I was a 19-year-old, 20-year-old college freshman is not what I needed when I was, you know, assistant professor at a high-ranked clinical program and what I needed when I was a new mother. All of these things evolve. And having that skill to get new mentors is a lifelong benefit that really, really benefits both the mentor and the mentee. And then we can reserve those two and a half million or maybe it's up to three or four million ones who are willing to volunteer with a stranger once a week to be more a paraprofessional mental health provider or academic support provider as opposed to just a friend. Have you mapped that continuum out anywhere yet, that continuum of relationships? Um sort of created yeah. a, a schematic for it in visual or in text? Or yeah, both? I have. I actually think it could be in the book or I might have pulled it, but I've definitely put it into talks and I'll send it. It's on the Mentor Hub <laughs> website. That's good. Then everyone listening can go find it and I will go find it there too. And there's a PowerPoint there too, which basically is is the arc of my career and might be helpful. There's a lot of visual, a lot of data. That's great. So shifting only slightly, you recently did a blog. You are a amazingly prolific blogger and you did one where you talked about, um, it was about more than this, but what jumped out at me was the difference in relationships between voluntary and involuntary settings. And this jumped out at me in part because of the particular nature of the world that we live in at Search Institute, which is about half schools and half out of school time and other settings. And a lot of times when I'm with some, this is oversimplifying and it's not a fair generalization, but it's not entirely wrong. Some of the people in out of school time sort of look at schools and say they're just so bad at relationships or they want to be good at relationships, but they have to worry about the test scores or something. And there's definitely a lot of truth in that. Schools can be, should be, need to be more developmentally relational places. That said, kids are not generally choosing to be in school, nor are they choosing to be in foster care or in a group home or probation setting or some treatment facilities. And so sometimes I'm thinking the real challenge is how do you build natural mentoring or developmental relationships with kids who are not choosing to be with you? How do you think about that challenge if you were talking to a teacher or probation officer or somebody who's working with kids, especially kids who are struggling or just have had bad experiences with systems? What would you advise them to do to to start to break through? Well, one of the things we need to think about is that the adults in those settings are overtaxed by ridiculous amounts that, um, you know, maybe there's one guidance counselor to 750 kids. And so the young person may not feel like they're being heard with good reason. That's a terrible ratio. And so, you know, some of it comes down to Mark Friedman years ago said, yeah, we can teach young people to fish, but we have to stock the ponds. And so my feeling is that one way to stock the ponds is to embed adults, caring adults into the after 
after school settings, the, the school settings. And so if you think about that model where a young person is referred to the school nurse for behavioral dysregulation, and then there's caring adults, other mothers, other volunteers who are embedded in that setting that can kind of take some of the slack and give the young person choice in who they're talking to, you know, maybe not such an authority figure. And so I think we need to do a lot more extracting kids from their classes to give them mentoring and embedding the mentors in the settings where kids are learning and growing. And that would be one way to think about that involuntary continuum. You know, that sort of raises one of those questions I was going to ask that's kind of left field, but it came to my mind as I was thinking about this conversation. If you could influence the thinking of one particular actor in the systems that influence kids, whether it was from the secretary of education at the federal level to a superintendent, to a principal, to a, a director of a sort of community collaborative, is there one pressure point in the system that you would like to just somehow shift to really take this amazing work you're doing and just breakthrough to the next level? Like, I know I'm oversimplifying it. There's not one pressure point in a system, but is there one that kind of comes to mind? Oh, if we could just get those people in that kind of job to think, the reason I'm saying this is the stock the pond idea that you just articulated is so compelling to me. And I'm like, okay, who do we have to get on board here to get the resources to stock the pond? Yeah. Well, well, here, here's my idea about that, Ken. Um, and, and it really comes from what's happening in my state, Massachusetts. There is this profession in my state called community health workers, where these young people, they may not even have a bachelor's degree. They can get certified to be a community health worker and they can get third party payment, right? And so now all of a sudden you have an entry level profession, like an army of caring adults, because what you can do and what I've been working with, and that's why I said I'm certifying therapeutic mentoring, is you take people who are getting their degree or their certification in community health work and you train them in the principles of best practice of mentoring. And then what's happening in Massachusetts starting in July 2021 is that somebody who's been trained in therapeutic mentoring and has been got the certificate and it's only 84 hours, which seems like a lot, but it's not, you know, you can do it over uh, several weeks, can now get insurance payment. And so instead of billing at $500 an hour, they're billing at $15 an hour. I would like to take that model, which I'm working well with My Brother's Keeper Boston, that model of certifying therapeutic mentoring and make it a national model, because then we have a much more diverse, much more rewarding profession of youth work and people who can be allies and advocates for the young people, because they're never going to get the care they need simply from teachers and professionals and therapists. It's We've got to create a whole new profession around bringing those developmental relationships to young people through these kinds of jobs and this kind of um, reward structure. And what was the name of the position? Not a therapeutic mentoring is the endeavor, well, but what, what was the is, name? Is community health worker. Community health worker, yeah, that's more accessible. And, yeah, community health worker with a specialization. So the way it works in Massachusetts is you do 64 hours where you learn how to work with families and ethics of care, all of that. And then you do 16 hours with me where you learn best practices in mentoring. And you take those 80 hours and you get certified as a community health worker with a specialization in therapeutic mentoring. And now you're part of the workforce and it's much more affordable, much more accessible to many more people. And then you arm those community health workers with evidence-based methods. You're beginning to break through. And you know, we see this in, you know, there's a whole global health movement that's going on that's relying a lot on technology-delivered interventions. And we need to copy that. You know, in India, for example, my colleagues over at Harvard are showing you don't need an MD. You don't need a PhD. You just need to get into these communities and help 
and you have to turn it into a profession. It's interesting. In another session of this Rooted in Relationships podcast, I interviewed uh, Jeff Duncan Andrade from University of California in San Francisco. And Jeff's work, uh, we stumbled on the discussion and I wouldn't let him off it. He's building out this wellness index. And it's very much from an equity social justice perspective, but it's 100% in this space that you're talking about. I mean, it really is wellness. And that's, that's been one of his journeys from sort of schools that are about social justice to this broader conception of wellness. And it's really, really interesting that the field seems to be kind of migrating. It is. It's migrating there. And it's because of technology delivered interventions that we can bring it to the villages across India, that we can bring it to whatever setting young people are in, we can bring the very best care. And it's going to rely on a human capital, which has to be a workforce development tool for the providers as well. What makes you hopeful and what are you concerned about? Well, the thing that makes me most hopeful is the child tax credit, because if it's true, 50% of American children are going to be pulled out of poverty. And it will be a right, not a benefit, a right of families that are, have young children to have the financial um, and health care that they need. And to me, that is the most dramatic and optimistic thing that could have ever happened. And I believe in part that we were delivered a president who cares more about these social justice and child poverty issues because of the pandemic. And so that's the bright side. I mean, it's brought untold sorrow and generation of young people uh, have suffered. But I think the bright side is that many, many people will be pulled out of poverty. And poverty is the biggest risk factor for all the problems that, that mentoring is trying to prevent. I think your dogs there are agreeing with your point about the uh, pandemic, which is wonderful. Um, Jean, thank you so much for taking this time. It's too brief to get a chance to pick your brain. And I know that I will be continuing to follow your work. And I'm going to go uh, immediately look at some of your new work that we've talked about. And I encourage our listeners to do the same and, and read the book, Older and Wiser. And I look forward to finding other ways to continue the conversation. I do too, Ken. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. That was Kent Pickell interviewing Dr. Jean Rhodes, the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and Director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. This podcast is made possible by the grants from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website, searchinstitute.org.